Future Sense is a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Hosted by Nick Jeans and well-known international futurist Steve McDonald, Future Sense provides a fresh, deep analysis of global trends and emergent technologies. How can we identify the layers of growth personally, socially, and globally? What are the signs missed, the truths being denied? Science, history, politics, psychology, ancient civilizations, alien contact, the new psychedelic revolution, cryptocurrency, and other disruptive and distributed technologies, and much more. This is Future Sense. Bay FM 99.9.1 below boiling. Bay FM wishes to advise that the views expressed in this program are not necessarily the views of the Bay FM Management Committee, volunteers, operational staff, or members. Not even sure they're our views exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they're just views we're presenting. Doesn't mean we're attached to them because uh, I think to be a, a complete human as much as possible is to be able to receive and accept uh, and look at as much information, diverse information as you possibly can. That would seem to be a scientific approach. Generally, we are talking today about the state of the shift on the planet from our little perspective here on Future Sense. Thanks for joining us. It's 10.09. That's right. So if you're feeling like you're in a shift, you're probably right. Yes. Uh, and we just talk briefly uh, about the situation in the Middle East, mm. which is very, very confusing. And, and we don't pretend in any way to know what's actually going on there because I don't think many people do. I'd even suggest that some of the key players in what's going on there don't really understand all of the dynamics yeah. that are influencing events right now. Um, I, I just do want to point out, though, that some of the issues that are lying under the surface around uh, particularly the uh, conflict that's just broken out at the moment between Kurds and Turkey mm. in uh, Syria, um, and they are, first and foremost, the going back a little ways, the idea of putting a gas pipeline uh, through Syria to uh, supply uh, natural gas to Europe. And uh, that was, it looks to me like the the foundational issue that gave rise to the conflict in Syria in the first place. Uh, and it, and it, that wasn't reported by the mainstream media. And mm. of course, we, we can't always believe what we hear in the media these days. And that's part of the reason why we talk about that some of these alternative viewpoints on this show, because they don't get the airtime that they deserve. So you've got um, that. That was essentially uh, a conflict that erupted between uh, Russia and the U.S. around the supply of uh, fossil fuels, and the European market was key to that because uh, Russia, uh, as I understand it, you know, supplies a fair amount of fossil fuels very, to the, the European very large market. Amount. Yeah. And and if that pipeline went through Syria, that was uh, threatening to change that arrangement and that balance, and so. Uh, Russia um, obviously didn't want their setup disrupted. The United States probably didn't want to disrupt what was going on for Russia, uh, and uh, and then of course you know the, the the public face of the conflict was situated around uh, Islamic State and, and all of that stuff, which which has arisen out of the previous conflicts, which had been. Uh, at least fueled, if not, if not initiated by the United States in the Middle East and very much situated around um, fossil fuel availability also. Mm. So it's a very confusing situation. It's not to definitely what it appears in the, in the mainstream media. Mm. And you've also got uh, the other issue, which again is really not being purported, reported in the mainstream media, and that is China's plan to reopen the old Silk Road Yes. and have that supply route running right across uh, the old USSR and down into um, 
Eastern Europe there in the Middle East and, and I, as I understand it, uh, terminating or, or you know, having its major Middle Eastern hub in Iran. Uh, and uh, we're all aware of the conflict that's going on between China and the USA at the moment, which is uh, at surface level mostly about trade. At a deeper level, there's probably a lot of uh, cyber warfare and stuff going on there. Mm. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a battle of uh, an established old superpower and what's seen to be an emerging superpower, um, and also having a big influence on what's happening in the Middle East. But again, not being reported in the mainstream mm. media. So, um, you know, so you've got the USA, you've got China, you've got Russia, and then you've got the local countries and their respective circumstances all feeding into what's happening in the Middle East, which makes it extremely confusing. Mm. And thus, allegiances are changing at all times and very hard to know who's on whose side. Yeah, just just on those statistics, 30% of the, the EU's petroleum oil imports and 39% of total gas imports come from Russia. That was in 2017. That's a lot. Yeah. So very dependent on Russia, Europe, and uh, clearly if they can uh, own more of the resources and the pipelines that go into these countries, then uh, there's a financial windfall for Russia or for whatever country um, owns and controls these resources. Exactly. So you can you can see how opponents of Russia might have been very interested in opening up that pipeline supply through Syria itself, yeah. uh, which, which of course required controlling that country and uh, and hence all of the conflict that's been going on there. I, I also want to mention that uh, Trump's pulling out of the, of the small contingent of US troops which is left in northern Syria, which seemed to open the door to Turkey to go in and uh, attack the Kurds as they're mm. doing at the moment. Um, in situations like this, and, and this is similar to something that I've experienced personally, which was when I was uh, in the military and got deployed to Somalia in the early 1990s to bring peace to what was a, a, uh, a fairly violent conflict going on there and, and which was um, increasing a humanitarian catastrophe mm. by uh, stopping the United Nations from feeding people who were starving. Uh, and what I witnessed in that experience was that we went in there as, a, as an external artificial influence and we certainly did create peace for as long as we were there. But as soon as we left, the peace was no longer. And I honestly had a sense uh, on about the second day that I was in Somalia that we weren't going to fix the underlying issues that were causing the problem there. Mm. You know, we could certainly temporarily stop uh, the violence and we did. Uh, but in terms of the underlying problems which needed to be resolved, they weren't being addressed at all. No. And the same, of course, has been going on in the Middle East. So the underlying problems and conflicts that, that sit there at a very deep level uh, are, are, of course, disrupted by the influence of outside countries coming in uh, with military forces. But at the end of the day, you know, when the dust settles, those problems are still there. And so as soon as you take the U.S. influence out, for example, all of those old problems are going to bubble back up again and they need to resolve themselves. Water needs to find its own level. Yes, water needs to find its own level. In some ways, that's a, that's a really simple way of looking at it and a way to to justify perhaps uh, the more hands-off that we are with other countries, the better, especially the, the great United States of America, which has uh, involved itself in the affairs of so many countries for the last uh, 100 years, if not more. It's almost unbelievable. And most of you out there who probably listen to this kind of show and to this station would be very aware of that uh, that project of America that uh, seems to be perhaps coming to an end. And as you said earlier, China, as perhaps the new empire rising, is uh, is uh, another uh, another equation altogether. And the U.S. perhaps is uh, wisely under under Trump. Maybe one of the wise things he is doing is, although sort of randomly, it would seem, withdrawing U.S. troops from these regions. And perhaps that's uh, ultimately a positive. 
Yeah, and the scientific industrial mindset, uh, you know, in, particularly in the case of the United States, has led to war becoming part of a business model yeah. with a, a massive military industrial complex, which of course Eisenhower warned against. 1960, yeah. After the end of World War II, mm. uh, and uh, it's a way of making money. It's a, it's you know, it's a, a massive way of making money, and you know, I don't see that uh, happening in China. Uh, no. Certainly not on any scale that compares to what the US had been uh, doing for many years. So, so it is. I think the the shift of power from the United States to China, which looks inevitable, and has been predicted by many people, I think is uh, is is going to bring a different set of circumstances. You know, it's not. I don't, really don't think it's swapping out one no. uh, superpower for another superpower of the same kind. Yeah. I, I think, think that's exactly right. I think that that because of that, I think that's probably why the U.S. is is nervous about that. Uh, the many aspects of the, of that uh, that changing of the guard, so to speak, because China will do it differently. They might not do it well. China's got big problems, as we know. What they're doing in Hong Kong is uh, is an issue. But as Steve said earlier, so far they haven't done anything too violent against uh, the protesters. There, let's hope that doesn't happen. No, I, I've quite frankly been surprised and impressed by yeah. the, the peaceful nature of China's attempts to bring control. Overall, yeah, 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 yeah true. Yeah. So um, mm. there's a lot of polarisation going on in the world at the moment, and this is coming from this values regression that's taking place, this regressive values search where, where people are feeling that things aren't right, the way that we've been living doesn't work anymore, we've got to find a new way, and of course the first natural instinct is to go backwards, uh, which is a very... Um, strong evolutionary dynamic because by going backwards and going back to older values we increase the tension for change like pulling back an elastic band on a slingshot and uh, the the more tension there is the more likely we are to change Mm. and by going back to older values which are even less appropriate for the, the present circumstances it becomes more and more clear that the values that we're aware of aren't going to cut it anymore and they throw us into this transformational process which happens in that chaos Mm. zone of the change dynamic so um, by going back to uh, what the the pre-scientific value set which is the uh, layer four authoritarian uh, set of values which come from the agricultural era and and which we saw sort of playing out during a lot of turbulence uh, in the in the middle ages which again was a, another time of transition between value sets as the old uh, authoritarian agricultural era values were coming to their the end of their use-by date and people were making a regressive search back to more violent value sets which gave rise to a whole bunch of violence around the world uh, but which also threw us into this transformational dynamic which led to the scientific and industrial revolutions mm. and the scientific era. And uh, a key characteristic of this uh, layer four authoritarian value set that we're now regressing back to is is uh, a very rigid, dogmatic approach, and uh, that of course is evident in the the structured religions which came out of that era, mm. where there was a very clear and specific set of instructions on how to live life appropriately, which which always came from a higher authority and and then the religious cases the higher authority was God who couldn't be questioned right because he was never here um, or, or he didn't answer when you asked uh, what do you mean God's not here and, really? and so Damn. and so what we're seeing in current affairs now is the re-emergence of this rigid dogmatic attitude where any opposing opinion uh, is just not tolerated like it's just not right to even entertain or listen to or allow people to speak 
another opinion. Hate to mention Peter Dutton again, but his latest uh, example of that, of course, a good example of this is his response to the Extinction Rebellion protesters, which has locked them up until they change their thinking. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's that's a great <laughs> example. That's a great example, and this is why historic. <coughs> excuse me, historically. Um, as we come into the scientific era, religions have been particularly anti-science because the science doesn't fit with this list of instruction that we got yeah. from the higher authority. Yeah. Uh, and so um, that whole value set, that way of approaching things is being transposed onto current affairs now. And, and perhaps one of the, the most prominent examples of this dogmatic, old-fashioned religious style thinking is the current climate debate. Uh, and uh, and Nick's you know making a funny face here because uh, no doubt he's feeling a bit anxious about us even mentioning this, and that's just a, a, a big sign of how dogmatic this global discussion has become around, uh, in some cases, whether the climate's changing at all or if it is changing, how it's changing and, and what the climate's going to be like in the future. And what the responses should be to it. That's right. And, uh, and a lot of this debate is extremely confusing because people are, are saying the word science and saying the science says this, but, says this, but they're, they're behaving from that old-fashioned dogmatic value set. So it's like, it's like a religious debate where people say, no, my God is right, your God is wrong. You know, you, we can't even entertain anything that you say. Don't say it. And that whole way of relating is being transposed to the climate and, say, and people are saying, no, my science is right, your science is wrong, you, you don't understand the science, no, you don't understand the science, you can't even say what, what you're saying, just shut up and we're not going to listen to you. And, or as I'd like to go with George, George W. Bush II, of course, famously said, you know, uh, you're either with us or against us. And I think that's the kind of thinking we're seeing too much of right now in the world over these really serious and important issues. We need a much broader debate over these things to really find a, a clear, a strategic way forward on the, in the long term. Yeah. The, the key to understanding what's going on in a holistic sense, uh, of course, lies in listening to both sides of a polarised argument. And anybody who's ever been involved in any kind of a, a uh, process of conflict resolution would understand that yep. you don't just make one person shut up and listen to the other person if you try to resolve a conflict. It just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You have to sit and listen to both sides of the story. And unfortunately, we're not getting both sides of the story through a lot of media at the moment. And there was a, a, a rather interesting and, uh, might I say, extreme example of that recently when the Conversation website, which is quite famous internationally as a, a, uh, a portal for academic thought, where many highly educated people write short essays about mm. various current affairs. And generally very good overall. And, and generally very, very good mm. too. But they, they came out recently and uh, made a declaration that they would not be allowing any, in inverted commas, climate deniers to express their opinions through the website, which, which is very interesting that they're actually shutting down you know, one section of the mm. debate. Uh, and, and this is essentially anti-scientific behavior, anti-scientific thinking, which which harks back to this pre-science mm. era, pre-science set of human values. And of course, we're not saying that climate is not changing. Climate has always changed. We're not saying either on this program that climate is not changing perhaps more than it was or in some other way that we don't understand. But certainly what is happening is that we are aware of it on a global level. But we're also aware of the incredible environmental damage that has been done generally on this planet, not just to the weather, perhaps to climate, but to the rivers, to the oceans, to the forests, to the soil, to these things. And, and in some ways, perhaps that broader conversation needs to be uh, taken on, I think, a, a bit more. That's my personal opinion at this point in time. 
Yeah, and uh, in favour of embracing the polarity, we we do sometimes talk about uh, science, which we believe takes a more complex approach to the, to the climate issue and is worth listening to, but which is actually being suppressed in the mainstream media. And, and uh, we have a, a story here today mm. which involves a letter that was written to the United Nations and presented to the United Nations by a group of 500 scientists and professionals on the same day that uh, Greta Thunberg spoke uh, to the United Nations in the New in New York uh, gathering. Mm. And of course, uh, Greta absolutely dominated the media coverage from that particular event. And uh, this does not seem to have been reported in the mainstream media. Mm. Um, it's a significant. It comes from a, a Dutch website. Uh, it looks like uh, called Clintel, C-L-I-N-T-E-L dot N-L. I'm sure you'll find it. Um, but yeah, going, it's a quite a significant piece here. Yeah, we'll post a link to this mm. um, PDF document that we're referring to uh, on Twitter and Facebook after the show. So um, it's titled, There Is No Climate Emergency. And the opening paragraph says, A global network of 500 scientists and professionals has prepared this urgent message. Climate science should be less political, while climate policies should be more scientific. Scientists should openly address the uncertainties and exaggerations in their predictions of global warming, while politicians should dispassionately count the real benefits as well as the imagined costs of adaptation to global warming and the real costs as well as the imagined benefits of mitigation. Mm. Says a bit long. It says, uh, Our advice to political leaders is that science should strive for a significantly better understanding of the climate system while politics should focus on minimising potential climate damage by prioritising adaption strategies based on proven and affordable technologies. Uh, There's quite a lot in that, but that's a a fairly reasonable statement to me. Yeah, and it's actually a fairly brief document. It doesn't go into a lot of detail at all, but the, the longest part of the document is the list of 500 scientists from around the world who have put their names uh, to this statement uh, from a whole bunch of different countries and, and many uh, countries that you know aren't necessarily obvious uh, in terms of what's been covered by the mainstream media. Uh, there's a, a lot of scientists from Northern European countries, yes. uh, you know, which have, have generally bega- been regarded over the years as being more progressive in terms yeah. of uh, the emergence of more complex values. Uh, and uh, and some scientists that we've spoken about previously on the show, such as Dr. Valentina Zarkova, who's an astrophysicist and mathematician. Uh, who is based in the UK at the moment, who's done some amazing research on solar dynamics, which point to uh, solar forcing as an influence on the climate, uh, contrary to, to mainstream narratives. And of course, as always, you know, you, you, you've got to do your own research. I had briefly a look at a couple of the, just picked at random a couple of the, uh, the individual scientists in this list just to see who they were as much as I could very quickly because I only received this uh, late last night. Um, and you know, it's because there's a lot of press out there about the influence of uh, money from various corporations and interest groups around the world uh, to support uh, climate denialism. We're not talking about that here. We're talking about an expansion of the debate to open up the discourse to uh, to a, a richer and more complex way of looking at these issues. It seems to us, seems to me for sure, as I've gone on that we are seeing and receiving an ever-increasing sort of truncated and narrow version of the science out there, and we need to do better than that, uh, that's for sure, if we're going to really find the right, uh, so to speak, the appropriate strategies, as as was said before in that piece. 
That's right. And even science itself is polarised at the moment. You know, there are scientists with appropriate qualifications who are arguing on both sides of the fence here. And uh, it's important if we're going to understand what's really going on and deepen our understanding of climate dynamics that we embrace both sides of science and, and all of the polarised opinions that are contributing to uh, the current circumstance to, to actually find somewhere in there the truth of what we face coming down the track. And uh, if these scientists are correct in claiming that there is no climate emergency, and I, I assume what they mean by that is that the climate is just doing what it's always done, and that is changing. Uh, and uh, what we're seeing is just another iteration of natural cycles, uh, which have been repeating as long as we know. Um, and that does not discount the fact that a human emergency might be approaching. So, yes. you know, part of the, Absolutely. the, the loss of... Um, the loss of value in this polarised climate discussion is we're losing the the uh, distinctions between some very very fine issues, uh, you know, some some very detailed issues, some very complex issues, yeah. and we're, we're seeing the conflation of issues like pollution of the atmosphere and climate change, you know, which are actually two different things. Uh, and uh, I, I don't think anybody would really argue that we humanity doesn't need to clean up its act and stop polluting our yeah. biosphere, um, but that you know, people are being lumped together into these two camps, and you're either if if you're against anything, then you're against everything. You know, from the point of view of the other side of the, the polarized parties. But uh, we we are seeing on this show good evidence from various people who have a, a good record of um, accurate predictions of natural cycles that there there may be a human emergency approaching, which is. Uh, revolving around our capacity to cope with and adapt to climate change yeah. and if if the climate change is faster than we can adapt as humans then we are facing uh, serious disruption of things like food production uh, massive population mobility as people are no longer able to live in certain areas of the planet and these are the things that our politicians and leaders really need to be focusing on is our capacity to adapt and how we might need to adapt rather than just arguing who's right and who's wrong. I mean this is this is really fantastic just this simple statement that Steve to, to me anyway the, the notion of adaption we don't really hear about adaption we're hearing about ourselves in response to what appears to be a crisis one or the other it doesn't really pick any crisis whatsoever but we never really talk about how we adapt enough I don't think and, and our capacity to do so which is really what we're about on this show that we actually have capacity as individuals as communities and globally to to shift, to move to a, a, a bigger paradigm, if you will, a, a greater version of events that encompasses more complexity, that we're actually capable of, actually, of understanding complexity more if we give ourselves uh, the, the space and time and energy to do so rather than to fix yourself in a position. Uh, be open to the possibility that we can adapt to what is generally and genuinely serious crises crises on this planet no doubt about that very very true very very true let's take a break yeah you're resonating right now on future sense with steve mcdonald and nick jeans you are tuned to future sense it's 10 36 here talking a little bit about the state of the shift here today on future sense and particularly the need for us to adapt to what may be coming down the track. Mm. And uh, we've just been talking about climate change mm. and the need to adapt to that. And uh, there's been some really interesting weather happening, which we're just going to skip through very, very quickly uh, in uh, Europe and also North America. And uh, people might remember that there was a particularly vicious uh, winter in North America last year as the polar vortex came down and, and into and across Canada and mm. 
the USA, and uh, where although that's not happening right at the moment, there is is um, there are early signs of a, another very very cold winter in North America. One of the implications of, of last year's winter was uh, the t- disruption of food production, which I think is is absolutely um, front and center one of the things that we look yeah. we need to look at adapting in the future uh, because. Um, some people that I respect are predicting food shortages, which may peak around 2028 and the, the uh, immediately the years immediately after that. Grow your veggies, folks. Um, Toronto, uh, in Manitoba, the uh, premier there declared a state of emergency recently as a large snowstorm snowstorm slammed the product. Um, province, yeah. yeah the, sorry, the uh, the province. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, in British Columbia, there were 41 uh, cold records broken in 48 hours as cold weather uh, hit uh, that part of Canada. Uh, in uh, Europe, Moscow recently shivered through its coldest summer in recorded history in over 150 years of weather data. Mm. And uh, these things are all very real and happening in the real world as, a, as opposed to happening in computer models. And I think that's a, a very important aspect of the whole climate discussion is we need to distinguish what's being predicted in a computer model and what is actually happening in the real world. And those things are often not the same uh, at the moment. And we're disappointing here, of course, to the complexity of this space. It's not one direction. It's, it's unpredictable or certainly less predictable than we think it is, much less predictable than we think it is. That's right. And it's encouraging to see that uh, the Russian deputy prime minister recently suggested creating an organisation of grain exporters similar to the organisation of petroleum exporting countries, OPEC. And he suggested that uh, to uh, solve the problem of world hunger. And that's the kind of thinking that we would encourage where people are looking at, okay, what are we facing right now? What's emerging, and and certainly disruption to agricultural growing seasons has been emerging recently, uh, most particularly with cold weather and also drought in countries like Australia. And these are the things that, these are the problems that we're going to need to solve in the future. So thinking about them now is uh, very, very encouraging and some kudos to to Russia for looking uh, into the future and uh, not getting lost in uh, arguments about who's right and who's wrong. What do you got on your list of current affairs there, Nick? Well, I, I did want to, before we run out of time, we mentioned it earlier uh, from Harvard University, which as far as we can tell has had no mainstream uh, reporting whatsoever. Uh, correct us if we're wrong. It's a, a piece from harvard.edu, uh, uh, from cid.harvard.edu. It's called The Atlas of Economic Complexity. That's the title. Uh, by the Growth Lab at Harvard University, the Harvard Growth Lab's research and data visualization tool used to understand the economic dynamics and new growth opportunities for every country worldwide. This is a very, very in-depth analysis of the economic trajectory of all the countries in the world. Australia, out of these hundreds, or most of the countries in the world, 133 countries in the world, I think it is 143, something like that, has uh, slipped from about 57th in 1995 down to about 93rd in terms of its complexity, meaning that we are at the ground of our of our economic stability, of our management of all of our industries, our resources, uh, everything we do as a nation in this country uh, has become uh, narrower, has become less supported, less development, less research, less money. And in fact, we are now seen to be uh, in, a, in a state where we are going to really just go downhill. We, as it says, in, I think at one point here, uh, we're a very smart country, but we're kind of dumb in terms of what we've done and how we've created uh, our, our strategic uh, focus economically uh, over the last, certainly over the last 20 or 30 years, if not longer. 
Yeah, the simple version of that is mm. you've probably heard the old expression, don't put all your eggs in one basket, because yes. if you drop the basket, you break all your eggs. And Australia, from an economic standpoint, has most of our eggs in very few baskets mm. in terms of where our, our money comes from. Uh, and uh, this uh, website is, is really wonderful. It's worth a look. You can go into the Atlas. It's freely available, all the data there. Mm. And uh, I've just put, put up uh, Australia's... Um, data from 2017 on my computer screen here and they're showing uh, where uh, what, what Australia's export income uh, was generated by in the year 2017 and uh, it's, it's spread across you know very few large buckets really uh, things like petroleum gases coal iron ores and concentrates uh, travel and tourism is a big uh, source of, of income for Australia obviously and um, you know though I mean if you just take those what are the three biggest uh, segments there? Uh, iron ore and concentrates, coal. Yeah. The next biggest one is actually tourism, but then it's followed very, very closely by tro petroleum gases. Yes. If for some reason, and you might have to use your imagination here, it's a stretch, if for some reason that people started moving away from fossil fuels in the world, then uh, you know how would that impact Australia's uh, economic base and of course with coal and petroleum gases being you know two of our largest sources which is precisely why I guess they're resisting uh, any sort of call for real action on these issues that's right so so you know what this data is pointing to is um, an opportunity for countries to yep. look at where their eggs are in their in their economic baskets and uh, and diversify and encourage uh, you know, a, a broad uh, spectrum of, of um, sources of income so that if there is disruption in one particular sector, it doesn't disrupt the whole country and, and throw exactly. us out of balance. Um, and, and Australia certainly seems to be in danger of that at the moment. And well, the uh, graph, as I said, we've fallen from 57th in terms of our economic and... Uh, and it's not just economics; it's more to do with what we do as as a people here, what we produce, what we create, what we how we uh, how our intelligence is applied to making and creating things, and we've dropped from fifty seventh in nineteen ninety five to ninety third. Says Australia is less complex than expected for its income level. As a result, its economy is projected to grow slowly, and that projection is about two point two percent annually over the coming decade ranking in the bottom half of countries globally. This positions itself very badly unless we do something quite significantly different pretty quickly, I'd imagine. That's right. And for our leaders to apply some intelligence to this problem, yeah. they need to have some intelligence. And, and that seems to have been uh, a little bit rare over recent years where, as, I, as we were talking about earlier in the show, as old systems start to decay, they attract uh, you know, less attention from uh, more capable people, and, and that you know, I don't think anyone would argue that we're seeing a dumbing down of our political processes globally at the moment. And uh, people are, uh, just haven't got their eye on the ball. You know, they're where with uh, simpler value sets being applied to the problem of managing complex countries. We're seeing people focusing on very simple issues like uh, insecurity and, and uh, will I get elected in the next election and those sorts of things rather than thinking longer term and, uh, and addressing some of the serious and complex issues which are mounting and mounting. Of course, it's very difficult because um, it's all about life conditions in many ways and uh, the life conditions <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> for the average person, even in our supposedly advanced, developed, Western, democratic, free market economies is not real good for a lot of people. And I just point to a very simple thing in America, it's not so far off, Jeff Bezos, the world's richest man, uh, is cutting health benefits for part-time workers at Whole Foods. The move will leave 1,900 people without health insurance. 
why would someone do that? I mean, the guy's got $114 billion. It's, it's mentioned in here that if he gave each of his workers half a million dollars, he'd still have $113 billion. It's, it's extraordinary to see this, you know, this trickle-up economics that has governed the yeah. world for a long time, and now we've seen the, the severe results of this in terms of just simple life conditions for people like this. That's right. Well, of course, the, the founder of Whole Foods, which uh, is a very progressive supermarket chain, as the name suggests, uh, which was founded, I understand, in Texas, uh, the the original founder um, sold it off to Jeff Bezos, and yeah. Jeff Bezos is clearly operating from a different value set, yeah, right. and so you know yeah. so that's hence that degradation yeah. of values there. On the uh, the positive yes. side, uh, mm. back to Australia. Australia, according to a report uh, in the conversation, which we mentioned earlier in the show. Uh, Australia is the runaway global leader in building new renewable energy. Yes, now, which you, is not many people. In fact, I'm. Why isn't this reported more more than it is? It's incredible, really. That's right. So that that uh, mm. does uh, sound a, a little horn of hope there for Australia, despite oh, uh, the economic situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, and so this is being measured at a, a per capita rate. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. per head of population, Australia. Uh, in terms of renewable energy is growing at 10 times faster than the world average. Uh, between 2018 and 2020, Australia will install more than 16 gigawatts of wind and solar, an average rate of 220 watts per person per year. So that's really encouraging. And, and there's a, a lovely graph here which shows us uh, leading the way considerably. The, the closest competitor on a per capita basis is Germany. Yeah. Uh, Australia, uh, 2018, we generated 200 watts per person of renewable energy per year, and Germany was at a, what looks like about 80, 82, mm. 90. Uh, and then after that, you've got the whole of the EU, which is down under 50. Uh, the USA is close to 50. So we're, we're way ahead of the rest of the world on a per capita basis, which is really, really encouraging. And it's, you know, it's, uh, it sounds uh, like a bit of hope there. It's fantastic. Another topic we talk about a lot here is health and uh, the future of uh, medicines, preventative and also curative, and uh, the new psychedelic revolution we talk about a fair amount on the show here. Uh, interesting that the uh, Tasmanian poppy farmers have suddenly found themselves a bit at the centre of the US opioid crisis. And most of us, I didn't realise, I knew Tasmania grew poppies, but I didn't realise it grows something like 50% of the world's poppies for opiates. Uh, so they're a bit on the firing line with the crisis in the US and, of course, the, the pressure from particularly medicinal cannabis to perhaps replace, ultimately, the use of opiates in many, many cases for some of those conditions. That's right. And it, it's no surprise then that politically the uh, emergence of medical cannabis has been suppressed here in Australia. Some uh, experts that I respect have said that the Australian medical cannabis system was set up to fail. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, and there's uh, a, a possible reason there, which, which uh, Lucy Haslam, one of the pioneers of medical cannabis yes. here in Australia, came out and said... Uh, in a recent uh, media interview that she was told by you know one of the people who wrote that legislation here in Australia that uh, the government wasn't going to let the opium industry get disrupted by medical cannabis. Mm. Uh, so so that kind of explains the, the slow progress here and this Indeed. is you know, pretty typical. To I have a really simple solution which I, I'm sure could be with a few tweaks could, could work and that is simply uh, get rid of the poppies and grow some, grow some medicinal cannabis down there in Tasmania. I'm sure it would be just as valuable. Well, it's encouraging to see that you can do that in the ACT now. You can uh, do that so in the ACT. There are mm. signs of progress, folks. Mm. It's not all bad news. No, it's not. Uh, uh, yeah, go. 
Oh, you got something there? I was just going to say, yeah. uh, on the health side as well, and this this is an animal health thing, um, people might be aware that they've had a really bad year in China this year with uh, African swine fever taking out uh, a whole lot of their uh, pigs. Uh, and, uh, you know, they've been burying massive amounts of pigs in mass graves yes. up in China, and, and obviously that's disrupting their pork supply, and pork, I think, is a pretty popular food in, in China. Uh, but there's a recent report in the ABC News that African swine fever has now broken out in Timor-Leste, so that's, uh, that is a concern. And uh, in general, the threat of uh, global pandemics, both uh, animal and human, and of course some of those things cross over from animal strains to human strains as well. So this is one of the things that we need to be aware of and, and we need to, to prepare for. Uh, and, uh, and there was another uh, article this week just pointing out that the world really isn't well prepared for uh, global pandemics at the moment, and that's something that we should be focusing on. Yes, and, and of course, <clears throat> with regards to the, the threat of sort of uh, disaster, we, we, we see I've got a, quite a frog, frog in my throat. I'm just going to cough for a minute. <clears throat> There's a cough button. We don't actually have a cough button here. Um, pardon me for that. But of course, we've seen so many, even in recent times, uh, notions that the world is coming to an end. And I saw a list on uh, social media the other day, uh, a brief list, the Cold War, the oil crisis, Nostradamus and Halley's Comet, the Indonesian invasion of Australia, the Y2K bug, 2012, the Asian bird flu, AIDS, the global jihad, the Ebola pandemic, and of course, climate change, the, a new ice age, which was touted before in, in the 70s and even earlier than that, 1920s as well. And climate change is global warming. So we, we always seem to have some sort of end times idea in front of us. Many people on this planet seem to be a, a sort of human condition. Perhaps it's what part of what drives us indeed. I think it's also linked to this big shift in consciousness that's coming mm. because uh, Claire Graves, uh, that we sometimes quote on the show, in his research, he identified a, a very marked shift between what he called the first tier and second tier of human consciousness. And, and that in, its, in, in some way is actually an end time. It is the end of a complete chapter in human history. And what emerges on the other side of this quantum leap in consciousness is a markedly different version of, of human. Uh, and some people are, are even suggesting that we're seeing here a, um, a transition to a new species of human. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I'm, I'm more and more starting to think that that's quite possible mm -hmm. and, and you know, following the science around that quite closely. Mm -hmm. So it's perfectly natural from that perspective that people might feel like there's an end coming. Yeah. An eschaton is the, uh, the proper word for that, the eschaton, the eschatology, the study of the end times. And there's always, and there's for thousands of years, as you're saying, really at, at crucial points, humanity has always feared the the asteroid, uh, the, the comet, the the dark of the moon, and various other things that, that portent something horrific and final arriving for us. So clearly, it's part of our uh, DNA almost that we that we think this way to a degree. Yes, it's coded in. It's, it's coded, coded into in. those value systems. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is the interesting thing about coming at this whole you know, discussion from a consciousness point of view is looking at how our consciousness seems to be coded in the same way that a computer is coded to uh, shape us to think in certain ways uh, given a, a level, particular level of complexity of our life conditions mm. and how, how those ways of thinking and coping and behaving shift when the life conditions reach a certain you know, level as they, as they increase. It's quite fascinating. I really. mean, the word consciousness is a word that science has still avoids, although there is increasing... Uh, interest in the, the idea of consciousness. I just wonder, just as we've got a minute or so, how you would define consciousness? 
Look, uh, it's such a broad topic. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess to me, the, the most fundamental definition would be uh, that which uh, enables us to be aware of reality. Uh, and not just to be aware of reality, but to interact with reality, to interpret mm. reality, to mm. make sense of reality. And of course, reality, <coughs> reality itself being, um, well, perhaps a moving feast, but certainly having perhaps <laughs> different different levels or layers, uh, because most people apprehend or think they're aware of reality in one level, but perhaps are missing uh, other, po- other places. In, and that may just be in human interaction, being able to read another person's response and reactions and emotional uh, responses to something for example yeah well it's, it's fair to say that when mm. a person is living according to a particular set of values in this layered arrangement of different mm. layers of consciousness that they are essentially living in a world of its own you mm. know they're interpreting the world in a very particular way mm. and and these uh, coded systems within us they shape our our very frameworks for making sense of reality itself and you know, to give a, a couple of really crude examples, I mean, at the third layer, reality is is like a jungle where you've got to fight to survive, and so everything is interpreted f- through that lens. Uh, you know, whereas the next layer up is your reality is a is a place where you have to li- follow a set of rules in order to live a righteous life. You know, and, and our behaviour is shaped very differently by those two from two different perspectives. Just just two examples. So we're living in a world of many worlds, and all of the people around us who appear to be in the same are in the same physical space you know they're they're actually mentally consciously quite possibly operating in very different bubbles Mm, absolutely i think we'll be there for today thanks for joining us on future sense yeah thanks for joining us and and i guess to give a a super quick summary you know some of the things that are on the radar that we need to be preparing for are uh, extra cold winters and uh, potential disruption of energy generation and food supply as a result of that cold you know which is happening right now in north america uh, and uh, a coming economic uh, hiccup early next year. And, of course, the, the big one for next year seems to be the U.S. elections and potential unrest around that. Mm. And I think something that's, uh, that's important to both of us, and that's generally the state of mental illness. We didn't uh, talk about that. It costs Australian economy $60 billion a year, research shows. And I think that's an area where we can do a lot of, a lot of good to help people to face these crises in a, in a, in a more holistic and a more conscious way. That, that's um, right, because the, the tension being created by this change process is, isn't uh, quite possibly generating a lot of that mental illness as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, with you next week, folks. And as we said, you can check out the edited podcasts within a couple of days through futuresense.it, our Twitter account at futuresense show, where we post some of the articles we refer to. We'll be with you next week here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Future Sense, a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Future Sense is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. The future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed.